Hi, this is Seaburn Fisher, author of Neurofeedback in the Treatment of Developmental Trauma, Calming the Fear-Driven Brain, and you're listening to the Neuro Noodle Network podcast. Thank you all for joining Neuro Noodle's Neuropsychology and Neurofeedback podcast featuring our neuropsychologist, Dr. Laura Janssens and Dr. Skip Wren. They've been practicing for over 50 years. You can find Dr. Laura at Janssons.com, that's J-A-N-S-O-N-S.com, and Dr. Skip can be found at DrSkipRin.com, that's DrSkip, H-R-I-N.com. My name is Pete, and today we're going to chat with Seaburn Fisher, author of Neurofeedback and the Treatment of Developmental Trauma, Calming the Fear-Driven Brain. This is a must-read, whether you're a practitioner or a client of Neurofeedback Services. Steburn, thank you so much for coming on. Can you give us a quick background on you before we get into it? Well, I've been doing neurofeedback for almost a quarter of a century, and I discovered, I found it for myself when a colleague of mine asked me to uh, be her first subject. We did SMR uh, neurofeedback for about uh, seven hours over a weekend, and a, I'm not recommending this at all. Um, this is not, do, do not do this. Uh, but it is how I got into the field because the effects were so dramatic. And what I discovered in the, in the process of quieting my brain was, which I didn't know, I, 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 I thought this was complete uh, hoax, you know, but I was just doing it for my friend. So uh, I had no, there was no paradigm that supported it. There was no way to think about it. It, We thought of brains as chemicals, bags of chemicals. We didn't think of the electrical networks at all. But anyway, I had this profound response. and, uh, And one of the things that I realized was that uh, an ambient level of fear that I hadn't, because it was ambient, I hadn't even really recognized was there, had just gone. Startle response was gone. And that my general reactivity my, was down, my, my social ease was up. You know, you can't have that kind of experience and not want to learn it and bring it out to at least to your patients. And then it turned out that I, I subsequently, uh, Norton asked me to write the book that were, you know, um, on neurofeedback and the treatment of developmental trauma, calming the fear-driven brain, which I did and finished in, it was published in 2014. And it is really a collection of stories. It's got some theory in it and so on, but it's really a lot of stories to try to understand how profound this particular interface is when you give the brain a mirror to its own function. We can't think about anything from psychotherapy to the nature of consciousness now, or at least I can, without keeping in, in the middle of the inquiry, the fact that the brain has such access to changing itself if you just give it the information. And the information on its own plasticity is in this electrical domain. I'm the layman of the three of us, Seaburn, okay? I'm going to give you my thoughts on it, and then I'm going to pretty much shut up the rest of the show here and let the psychologists go at it. But this is what I got out of it, and then you guys set me straight if I'm right or wrong, okay? What I got out of it was how you're brought up when you're young affects your mental well-being when you're older. Neurofeedback can address the symptoms of a troubled childhood. Cerebellum is vital to development 
like when a mom cradles her kid in rocks, they give an example in the book. The amygdala is more often than not the culprit in a fear-driven brain. Am I close? Yeah. Um, okay. There's nothing, there's nothing um, really wrong. It's just uh, in what you said at all. It's just yeah. it's just facets of the whole thing, as it would be. But it it, it just to, to, to comment on two things that you said. One yeah. is that it's the mental well-being, it's the physical well-being as well. And there's more and more study of that. So when we're doing neurofeedback, we're addressing the brain, we're addressing how it, how it represents its problems in the body and the mental function. And the other thing is, is that this work that Ruslanius is doing particularly is showing us that the amygdala is kind of the end point, not the beginning point of fear, uh, that the that the generation of fear is in the threat detectors in the in the brainstem in the upper brainstem or the lower midbrain, and how do we reach that with talk therapy or play therapy or anything else that we are trying so desperately to do with these kids who are living in these fear driven brains? If somebody's having troubles now as an adult. I know you don't like percentages, but more often than not, they had a problem with their childhood. Is that right? Or they fell or something? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I would say more often than not, it's safe. Okay. Because there's a reason for it. I mean, I, I like to say to everybody that comes in, you know, the clinic, everybody's got something. Nobody's perfect. There's no normal brain, just like you say, Seaburn. Everybody has something in the, and you have to get to the bottom of it. And to me, this book spoke to me that said, hey, look. As simple as, you know, with all the cell phones now, I don't know if this is right or wrong, but with the new moms out there, if you're messing around on your phone and you should be cuddling your child, that could have an effect on their future, right? It could. It could, and it would be a hard, it would be a hard effect to tease out because, but, you know, any turning away from the, I mean, in, in any prolonged way, turning away from the infant or, or an attachment rupture is really the core problem in developmental trauma. It's not so much the beating or the, you know, or whatever awful things also happen to children, tortured survivors, but this mother's face turned away from the baby's face. Her, Her heart turned away from her baby's heart. Can I, do you mind if I jump in right there? Because that was something that was, you know, grabbed my attention for sure. And this unrepaired attachment rupture. Wow. Can, can you just talk to that a little bit more? And 25 questions in one, but maybe we can just start there. And, and the idea that this starts so young or early and then perpetuates over time is fascinating. But again, if you could just talk to it, maybe from your experience and maybe even from you know, neural anatomy, it, it'd be nice to know how this builds over time too. Well, let's... Um... Oh, Skip, I'll do my best because that's three webinars. Yeah, I know. I know. I'm being selfish with the question. <laughs> but uh, but let's just start with Alan Shore. As many of your, you know, you, you probably read Alan Shore, Dan Siegel along the way, right? Yeah. Okay. So what 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 are the, what's their fundamental message? Their fundamental message is you need to have affect regulation to develop affect regulation. You need someone to help you regulate affect as an infant 
to develop your own ability to regulate effect. Okay? Effect regulation is the key to trauma treatment. It's the key to most psychotherapy, right? So how do we get that? So if that didn't happen for the baby, that their mother was comforting or their father was lovely, that they had this uh, uh, at least good enough parenting, at least in the Winnicott's term, at least good enough parenting that they were soothed often enough, that it was predictable enough that they would get soothed. If they don't have that, certain networks don't develop in the brain. And the core network that, de- that doesn't develop in the brain, if there is not a- suitable affect regulation, is called the default mode network. This is the work, this is really the seminal work of Ruth Lanius and her lab in London, Ontario. So what they see is that with people with developmental trauma, they don't have this structure that goes from the back of the head to the front. It's down the middle. It has, it's a large network and it has offshoots in the temporal areas and and other other areas. But the major hubs of the default one network are the the, uh, PZ or the precuneus or the back of the head, right at PZ, FPZ, right over the front of the anterior cingulate, the very front of the cingulate. That network doesn't develop. And without that network in place, you don't have a inherent knowing. You can't have an inherent knowing of self and other. It doesn't exist without that network. And what you see in fMRI studies of people who have been severely neglected and abused as children, because that's the study that's been done. Uh, we just don't know how much that is with less or greater severity. But there is, that default me- mode network is not uh, formed. It's not functioning. It's not there. And the way that it comes online, as I said a little bit ago, is through affect regulation, through, through this uh, attuned um, relationship between mother and infant. Uh, and uh, if that doesn't come online, isn't a capacity to have cause and effect. There isn't a, a capacity to regulate affect. There isn't a capacity to behave uh, appropriately. There will be, uh, there's even research showing that what we think of as the most dysfunctional behaviors and what is called, I'm doing air quotes for the radio, radio <laughs> podcast listeners, that uh, borderline personality, uh, those behaviors that are so threatening to us as therapists and so difficult to deal with and are so difficult for the patient as well and often humiliating, they're at risky behavior, risk-taking behaviors, high levels of risk bring the default mode network online in those who don't have one. Our patients are trying with those (laughs) behaviors to get a sense of self, to establish a sense that they exist at all. And that if we understand that, now this is part of what I talk about all over the world, if we understand that, we think about the whole dilemma of this level of mental illness differently. If we understand it's in the brain, if we understand that it affects the default mode network and it affects the capacity to to of, for self-control and learning and the autoimmune system and affects all kinds of things then uh, we see how these 
events or lack of events in early childhood perpetrate themselves. I mean, they keep going. They perpetuate. (laughs) They perpetrate too, but they perpetuate. Right. So is that, is that, clear skip and ask anything yeah it sure is and i'll bet you like laura and pete um when you get a good answer it just leads to you know 15 more questions but just a a, a, i think pretty straightforward one when you say early development and and early childhood where are we talking from zero till what and i'm thinking of listeners too right when's this period where you can be affected i think you can be affected in utero you know when you think about it uh, a baby uh, two months before she's born is very much in in touch or maybe even earlier with the environment of the mother. Yeah. She knows whether the mother is afraid or the mother is okay. She knows if the environment is threatening or not threatening. One of the uh, worst attachment indicators for human attachment bonding is abuse of the mother in uh during pregnancy, the, one of the worst. So we know that that's already affecting the capacities of the, of the mother and child to bond. Um, and I think, you know, after that, we're really looking probably at the first three years, first five years. But if you've had good enough tr- parenting for the first five years, uh, and for some people, you know, this is rare, but some people don't seem to be as affected by this as most. But in the first uh, three years, if you've gotten pretty solid parenting, you've gotten these brain networks online. They are, you've got the idea of a predictable universe because you've been treated predictably. Your right hemisphere is online because that develops in the first year and a half. So that's online, and uh, and so you can have a capacity to regulate affect. When you can regulate affect, people are drawn to you. When you're wild and kicking and biting, they're not drawn to you. And so you end up, there are consequences to that. Destroy your life. I'm going to leave it open uh, to my co-question co- <laughs> asker here and see if Laura has any. <clears throat> she does. So me and Skip, just a little a little bit more background. Me and Skip went to the same neuropsychology program and we have this, the same mentor and he happened to um, be kind of co-editor of the journal, The Cerebellum. And so as you bring up The Cerebellum, I think about Len Koziel, our mentor, you know, spoke a lot about early childhood development and he yeah made this same point, but from a different angle that Cerebellum uh, is extremely fragile during development, uh, as is as are the basal ganglia systems. You know, obviously, trauma is going to affect the development of cerebellum and your posterior systems, as, as you're talking. The default mode uh, connecting in loops with the uh, frontal lobe and your memory systems and your emotional systems. You know, so it's getting me to think about the cerebellum in general. It helps you sync what you know or what you do to reality, to the environment. You talked about the, the right hemisphere and, and how do you integrate your programs, what you're genetically built to do, how do you link those behaviors to reality and the environment, et cetera. You know, we see plenty of folks who come in for neuropsych testing, a lot of, you know, obviously children who, um, yeah, they're dysregulated. So emotionally, they're, they're not matching the situation. They have these sensory disorders where they're 
overreacting and then we go the other way they're underreacting their, their emotions are you know overspent and there's the uh, shaman am i getting that right skip uh, yeah, yeah yep. shaman i want to pronounce his name so don't yeah don't okay worry. that's like seaburn and seven right? that's right, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so this is hard Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I had the delight of, of seeing him once. Yeah. He's a great guy. Yeah. So regulating, you know, in, in adjusting and predicting, uh, you know, what you're going to do in the environment. And so I, I know this is taking this on a tangent a little bit, but the, the first thing really that popped in my head when you started talking, Seaburn, was uh, actually autism, you know, aut- so, so I guess I'm curious about your per- perspective on the link between, you know, the, the brain disorders developmentally you know, we, we can go one direction and talk about, yeah, the, the trauma and the fear-based brain and, and how, how that develops. And you're, you're not having a, a, a safe um, prediction of reality. You're, you're, you know, almost as if you're blind to reality and you're, you know, over, over uh, responding to situations emotionally. But I guess, you know, make it a simple question. Do, do you see links between, uh, you know, development and as you're talking about and, what seems to me, I guess I get referred a lot of autism cases, me and Skip, I don't want to speak for Skip, but we're, we're kind of known to not diagnose autism very often because we see so many other things going on that it makes it hard to do that. So I guess I'm curious about your perspective on that. Well, um, I don't, I have worked with a couple of autistic people, mm-hmm. but the referral came into me through the root of developmental trauma. And obviously autistic children are not exempt from being brutalized and mm-hmm. sexually abused and so on. But in, in our feedback terms, Laura, I think what we're looking at in the terms of, of heightened arousal and reactivity, surely the issue in most autism, you're trying to calm down the reactivity of the brain. So if you really, if my title really were to serve, it would be fear and reactivity, and that, but I can't, couldn't get that all into the title, and <laughs> it sort of, it sort of dulled the point, you know. But it's reactivity, and and often you can think about that in terms of autism because these are folks that are by and large not acquainted with their right hemisphere, and they don't won't talk to you about fear. They won't talk to you about anguish. You know, they won't talk to you about, I mean, I'm talking really, I work mostly with adults, you know, um, because they don't have access to any of them. But their arousal is always high. I think it's fair to say that all developmental disorders, developmental trauma included, all developmental disorders leave uh, uh, a nervous system in a state of high arousal. And and partly because a lot of developmental disorders are affecting the development of the right hemisphere because the right hemisphere needs that first 18 months or two years to develop fully. And if this person that the one person I'm thinking of is in the book was eating disorder and trauma and autism, uh, Asperger's, we were always training to lower her arousal and my trained one point to raise it all hell broke loose you know and I, I don't even remember now why I thought to do that but it's sort of so, so the intersection between the two oh what I was going to say about her was that uh, when she uh, a salient piece of her history was that she started to talk at age one in full sentences so everyone thinks she's a prodigy 
which she's very, if she was very smart. But what's happened then is that the right hemisphere has stopped developing and it needs that full trajectory of, of time. This is all from Alan Shore to develop fully. Uh, and it was interrupted both by trauma, but, but I think first and foremost by, by, by whatever this autistic process is. I just want to have a couple of comments on the cerebellum if, if you're there. Yeah, yeah, we're, yeah, we're, we're, we're cerebellum folks. So when I came into the field, um, and I think and the field of neurofeedback, you know, I'm a therapist. You know, I, didn't, I knew no neuroscience, I, none of the training that you guys have had, for better or worse, maybe, right? Because I think that training can open a door, but can also keep it you I'm sure you've had with some colleagues. So uh, there was no mention of the cerebellum. It just wasn't a part of the conversation because there was no uh, trace of electrical activity from the cerebellum. Now, how could that be true? It's only been, I think it was in 2018 that they started to find this very high frequency waveform from the cerebellum. So the cerebellum is definitely contributing to the picture. And in developmental terms, uh, the cerebellum is, um, is the first part of the brain inhibit the temporal lobes. So to, in, it, to inhibit uh, the firing of the amygdala, right? Or the firing of the, now we think about these sphere circuits because it's not just the amygdala. So, and that, as we, you know, mentioned earlier, is established really, again, predictability is an incredible and very important um, piece here is there's a predictable being held head being held you're being rocked you're being you know that and holding is actually underrepresented in the in shore right he doesn't represent it as much as he should it was his focus is on the front and the developing of the front but the development of the front as we're seeing is very dependent on the development of the back and so it's 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 very important that this kind of rocking and, and nurture, sucking, holding, you know, being able to organize the, the circuits in the back of the head is very important. One other, just sort of another piece of data, which got me interested in how could we train the cerebellum, since there's nothing in the literature on that, was an article in one of Lanius's books by uh, Teicher, um, Marty Teicher is one of the leading researchers in trauma, um, in childhood trauma, and Carl Anderson. Carl Anderson is the other guy who has a more pronounceable name, who's the other big shot in the field of the cerebellum, who's written the most in the area of the cerebellum. Uh, and he had developed a device where you could see the blood flow in the cerebellum. You could measure the blood flow. With, well, wasn't it a terribly invasive thing? I don't know exactly what it was, but it worked. And so Marty said over people who, uh, women who had been sexually abused as children, this was the category, and what, or, or, or a group in this category selected itself, of women who had been abused, uh, sexually abused as children had excess blood flow in the cerebellar vermis. And you mentioned Shamamana's name, Right, I probably mispronounced. Um, you know, his recent. I saw a, a grand rounds that he did at Harvard on uh, the vermis being a sort of seat of behavioral disorders. 
right? If the, if the lesion in the, in, the, in the cerebellum is near the vermis, as opposed to further out in the cerebellum, uh, further out, you'll have balance disorders. Further in, you'll have behavioral and emotional disorders. Okay. Social, yeah. Right. So, so then uh, that led me to, to looking at how could we possibly train the cerebellum. And it's completely off the 1020, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Thatcher has a new, new database. And um, so we're able to do mapping. And I know we talked about mapping uh, before we started the, to record this. Um, so th- there's availability to do the, uh, the 19 channel trainings on the cerebellum. Uh, it's relatively new in the last six months or a year or something. And I'd be curious how that plays out over time. Where's the placement? Uh, the 102. And I think the point is something to do with, with uh, the voxels and, and how they, they can get different angles now. And so they're, they're, uh, they're getting down into, you mentioned the, uh, the brainstem. Uh, getting into the thalamic areas and the amygdala. And so at least we can get, you know, the the uh, imaging. So yeah, kind of curious how, you know, I, I haven't used it very much. I've used it a bit. Like you said, it's not really cost effective, but yeah, you kind of get curious when you see all these traumas or developmental disorders, kind of what what's dysregulated in the cerebellum. And we work a lot with occupational therapists to try to you know, do pre and post uh, imaging to see, you know, if their trainings are, are being effective. And it's interesting work. And I, yeah, I'd be, be curious if that takes off in any direction. Placement that we're exploring and as a community, as a group of people who I work with is uh, at the Union Ridge. So it's below 01, 02. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can be right at the in, at, at IZ, or it could be interhemispheric, as it were, on both sides of the vermis. I mean, we don't know, right? What's reaching what? Even in the even with all of the sophisticated algorithms, we really can't end up knowing for sure, or at least there's enough debate. But try it, try it for yourself. Yeah. Um, yeah. And typically, um, the rewards that have been are much lower when you get to the back of the head in the, in the arousal model that I use, uh, are much lower and you get to, you might even start at as low as two to five. If you tend to be over aroused, go to two to five or lower, or if you tend to be under aroused, four to four to seven, but higher than four to seven, most people have had difficulties, which shows you it's an influential spot. And it will, if you put a, a sensor at the Indian Ridge and you put one at OZ, right, and, and not linked, right, just look at the signals different and the signal mm-hmm. is typically more powerful at the Indian Ridge than mm-hmm. it is at OZ. That's something for you, given your interest in your training, mm-hmm. to, to consider. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. training uh, personally with uh, Mike Cohen, who was on the show a couple months ago in that area and it was uh, on, you know, downtrain, um, you know, quiet the mind, so to speak, right. Air quotes again. And so they, you know, they did their thing at F3, F4 and that was a disaster. And Mike's been messing around. Um, he might not appreciate me saying it that way, but also, <laughs> he also might not care. Um, he's been uh, trying uh, to do lots of things. OZ 0102 um, trying to get after the default mode network not so much cerebellar area focus, but it's in the ballpark. And so he, that is where he's working. And personally, um, it worked better than the other at quieting. It just felt uh, a little more cohesive, felt like things were just working a little more in concert, which it has a net effect of calming, right? 
Yeah, yeah. I, I think that, I mean, the, the, there's a brain structure back there, which we skip over. Um, it's called the cuneus. And it is an inhibitory structure, a bit large inhibitory structure. All that's going on in the occipital is not just uh, eyes and vision, although you can affect the vision training there. So you want to be uh, aware of, of, um, of that. Yeah. You get facial, you get facial recognition there and uh, you know how, how that links to, like you say, identifying the mother and identifying other people and social development and a huge, huge piece. And, and then we kind of link that back to the cerebellum and autism, kind of getting to that, that thing again, but absolutely your brain develops from back to front. And uh, yeah, we're so kind of egocentric to think we have control over everything. We're, we're frontal lobes, but uh, that's right. definitely goes the other way, doesn't it? But what I wanted to say is that the, uh, there is a paper out um, just in the last three or four months of pre and post fMRI uh, with neurofeedback in developmental trauma. It's really a, the biggest breakthrough paper, I think, in the field of neurofeedback, particularly in the field of neurofeedback and trauma. And this is, uh, again, this is Ruth Lanius's work. And in it, what she shows is... Um, so she's got 26 or 25 or whatever number of people who have uh, a before neurofeedback, they're dissociative, they have a lot of, of you know, they have, they've been screened for trauma and they all screen in. And in it, she, uh, she, what you see in those brains are a hyperconnectivity between the periaqueductal gray which is the threat detector right in the, in the, in the high up in the brainstem and the amygdala. So that it, these are people who are constantly scanning for threat. I was one of those. So I know. So scan so constantly scanning for threat, even subconsciously, right? Not even necessarily with awareness. Uh, but my brain is wired that way because it was my infancy or young childhood anyway, was, uh, you know, a near death experience. So when it's a survival brain, 100% of the people showed that brain connectivity before neurofeedback. Then she did one session and what her protocol of choice, on the whole long story, but her, her protocol of choice was alpha down. So she's putting at PZ, and, she, and uh, so she's just inhibiting alpha at 8 to 12 hertz, and alpha tends to move around, and she's been able to, that's been able to help people with low alpha, baseline alpha, people with high baseline alpha, right, find a, a, uh, a healthy alpha uh, amplitude um, for, as well as frequency. But what was stunning is that in 80% of the people who had done one session of neurofeedback, this is, this is, you just have to have it on your websites, right? One session of neurofeedback, uh, now we're showing connectivity to, between the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex. So the prefrontal cortex had, was taking over its mm -hmm. duties as the regulator of the amygdala rather than the amygdala uh, being hyperwired to threat detection. It's astounding. It should have been on the front page of the New York Times. It's, it's hardly even broken the surface of our community, and it needs to because it is, it is really essential research. 
the uh, FPO2, I know we're, we're jumping around, we're talking about prefrontal cortex, but um, one thing I, I learned from your book is the FPO2 spot. The funny thing is when I was first learning this is I had the equipment at home on my dining room table and I'd get up early and I'd practice all these things on myself. I uh, use FPO2 for probably longer than I was supposed to for not really having any significant symptoms, especially early in the morning. And uh, I put myself to sleep for an entire weekend. Did you? I couldn't do anything. Yeah, I was completely <laughs> knocked down. So yeah, we lowered your arousal for sure. Uh, yeah, yeah, I lowered. I couldn't get out. Couldn't get uh, out of the horizontal position. Um, <laughs> wow. So yeah, wow. all this stuff is super, super powerful. Uh, I, I know the time is kind of uh, uh, running down for us. I, I did have a question about kind of your perspective on you know, it's going to be the obvious question, COVID and the isolation. And what do you think that's doing? And how do you think, you know, what do you, what's your prediction on, you know, what we're going to see a year or two from now in terms of trauma uh, related to that? It's probably safe to predict serious consequences to this uh, pandemic worldwide in terms of people's ability to quiet their arousal. In homes that were all, and that's really the fundamental thing. It's not the DSM. It's not the even the brain map, right? It is how can you how can you live in this brain? How can you live in this system? And already dysfunctional homes have not become more functional during this period. Uh, they're more hidden. There's less intervention because kids are not in school and they're turning off their cameras, or their parents are turning off their cameras, even if they're in virtual school. Uh, their learning is way behind, their self-esteem is going to be affected. It's going to matter a great deal how schools uh, deal with this. Both families and kids have, and, their, and the children in those families have lived in essentially in social isolation under the threat of losing their homes or losing their jobs or if they haven't, that hasn't already been the case. So the whole threshold for trauma, I think, has dropped and uh, I think there's going to be a much... Uh, you know, I heard one one NPR, I think it was report, said they were expecting an 80% increase in special ed demand for special ed. We don't, we're not ready for that, right? You know, and I think you know, again, because we see, we can see profound effects, and the school system as a whole is beginning, uh, uh, the school system as a thought, anyway, is moving more and more towards social education. I seeing that the kids are who are having problems are having problems relating, having problems controlling behavior, are having social problems, right? Or psychological problems. Uh, and really they are arousal regulation problems. And they come whatever route they come, Asperger's, autism. I know Asperger's has now disappeared, but autism and, and trauma are, are some of them. You can have other kind of learning disabilities to create these kinds of agitations. Neurofeedback can address them all. And uh, that's, it, it just, you know, my hope is that there's an opening for, for this technology in the schools, in the special mm -hmm. platform. Bessel Vanderkoek, who is a, a friend of mine, has become a friend of mine over the years, mm -hmm. lives nearby, uh, lives in the same county as I do. And, and he is, trying to get up and running a program for neurofeedback in the schools. That's awesome. Uh, and we'll see. 
you know. Yeah, we we yeah in Bessel Vandal uh, Colt, yeah, great great guy, and you're very yeah kind of lucky to be so close to him. Me and Skip have both seen him in different uh, venues, but um, we we live in the Chicago area, and you know uh, hopefully there's other colleges that do this, but we heard recently that uh, University of Illinois at Chicago. They, they have stations for the college students. Sounds like they're in kind of, um, kind of the own, their uh, own section of a building and they're, they're little like carols or stations where people just can come up and, and do biofeedback and do some neurofeedback, I think, that's just part of their, their campus there. So I, I thought that was uh, pretty progressive. And uh, yeah, I can see what you're saying in, in Bessel's uh, goals there to you know, hopefully have these kind of stations and, and uh well, probably, probably not in elementary school, and there'd be the stations, but there would be the possibility of getting neurofeedback, and the whole curriculum would turn toward affect regulation, teaching mm-hmm. kids all of the techniques, breathing, yoga, you know, running around, uh, getting exercise in the morning, uh, food, and how food affects them, and blood sugar, so they'd learn it all. They'd, have, they'd be literate in their own bodies and brains. Mm-hmm. Yep. Skip had a question. Yeah, Seaburn, another kind of big question, but just given our time here, and you mentioned the obstacles in the field and how the situation might be changing, uh, particularly with the influence of the NIMH and maybe paradigm shifts with the Human Connectome Project. Can you speak to that? Um, We tend to ask our guests that are in the field, like, hey, what do we do? How do we get the word out? How can we not have the situation where these miraculous uh, discoveries happen and it's not even a blip within our own industry. Like how, 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 how is this stuff changing? Do you think? Well, you know, I think it, the prediction that he had about um, that this would change psychiatry, unfortunately didn't come true, right? That if you learned about the human connectome and you learned that it was really addressing the human connectome, not the chemistry in the brain, or, or behavior per se, that would change the practice of psychiatry. In fact, he got a real blowback from a lot of people because it shifting paradigms, as you know from your own experience and colleagues' experience, is not an easy thing. I think if I hadn't had the experience that I had that was so profound, and that I'm not recommending anybody to have, I wouldn't have ever believed what I'm hearing about what you and I are talking about, sort of second nature, right? It's like, we know this happens. We see it every day. We know the brain works this way. We know it can be appealed to. We know we can, we have access. We just, we just have many discussions on how best to access the brain. It's not chemically. And unfortunately, it's not, at least initially, through talk therapy. These, there are major structures and, uh, and networks. His focus was on networks. Insel's uh, focus is on networks that affect how we are as human beings, including what weight we commit to, which is what he was focused But there has been no reduction in the rate of suicide with every possible approach we've used to psychotherapy, for, I mean, for therapy for these individuals, and that being the central metric is what's the suicide rate it, there's been an increase of suicide in the united states by 28 percent in the last uh, 20 years and that is um with all of the antidepressants and the abilify and 
all of the drug. It's not working. It's not working. We need to think differently. We need to think newly. And he tried to do it, and he shows proof of it. He writes articulately about it. And there was mostly, from what I could tell, blowback. This is reductionist. Anyone who could think that working with the brain is reductionist doesn't know what working with the brain means. <laughs> it's like, you know, but, uh, but that's what, so, so I don't have a, I, I ask myself that question every day. I ask myself that question. And every time I do a PowerPoint, I'm, you know, write a PowerPoint for a, for a presentation. What can I say that will break through this pushback against the paradigm shift? But, you know, I had this image of Atlas holding the world. And I thought, you know, that's a paradigm, that, right? That, that, that globe that Atlas is carrying is a paradigm. And so we have all, we organize that. We're asking people to take that one off their shoulders, put it down, and pick up another one. It's like, why would you do that, right? Unless you had some sort of profound experience that this, or, or some profound insight that this worked the way that it does. For me, it took 25 years ago, and it might today, if I hadn't had this experience, took the experience that I had myself. Uh, but I do everything I can, Skip, to get the word out. I mean, you know, and Bessel and Ruth, but the fact that Ruth is doing this research is absolutely jaw-dropping, what we're seeing. And that's going to break the surface. It's, it, it is beginning to. She's beginning to be recognized as the leading neuroscientist in trauma. It's about neurofeedback. Her neuroscience is about neurofeedback. Bessel opened up a two-day workshop. It was during COVID, so it was virtual. Um, but there were people there, so maybe it's was virtual for me. I might be mis misdating it. Anyway, I was watching on Zoom, but there were people there, so it must have been January, February. A um, couple hundred people there, however many people listening, and it was on trauma treatments. And he said the most effective treatments known at this point are yoga and neurofeedback. Everything else from this point on for the next two days is extra. Right. <laughs> He's doing his best to get the word out too. Uh, on a more, I guess, individual base, how are you doing this with patients, folks you work with, clients, whatever you're calling them? Um, you're doing neurofeedback and psychotherapy. Uh, I think I know what those are, but how are you integrating this information, or is it experiential? And so they're 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 in in the in the know already. Meaning. Well, for me now, most people who come to see me are asking for neurofeedback. They okay. either read the book or they know about me somehow. Okay. But, uh, but and, and many of them say psychotherapy didn't work or whatever, which is always a throwaway line because psychotherapy is never, psychotherapy is never just a thing, right? So a relationship, a skill, so on and so on. Okay, so, um, uh, and almost all of them, and they don't want psychotherapy. They just want our feedback and almost all, but I don't buy, I don't agree to that. And almost all of them, once they get a little feel for effect regulation and for me, want to do therapy, uh, but they serve each other, right? The therapy serves the getting through the bad times of neurofeedback and neurofeedback serves the therapy by bringing self and other into the, the possibility for self and other into this traumatized brain. See, Bern, I got a I got a wrap up question, and then uh, we'll we'll close it out. Developmental trauma. You said the term "good parenting." I know it's air quotes. We got a lot of moms that listen to this podcast, and you say hey, give good parenting in the first three years of life. 
in a couple minutes, can you just say what is good parenting that we can tell the moms and dads out there? <laughs> right, right. Well, first of all, it's good parenting throughout, throughout good parenting throughout life, actually. I'm just saying that you have a much better shot at life if you've had at least good parenting in the first three. But you know, it's really it's really what mothers do naturally. It's, it's attuning with their babies. It's soothing their children when they're in distress. It's helping them learn to cope with stressful situations. It's, it's warm attunement um, and not being too anxious about being attuned. You know, I think that's the, under, uh, the, the meaning within your question is when somebody, is, when parents have said it's on them to make these, you know, help these children, it kind of is, help these children have a decent life. And then there's no guide to how to do that. The fact is that most people are doing it most of the time. So, uh, you know, it's just face-to-face, heart-to-heart, warm connection, um, and repair. Repair is incredibly important. So when when there's a a breach in 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 the perfect attunement, which there always will be, uh, and you lose it and you just can't have it. You scream and you, and they start to cry and, you know, you just, oh, oh, I'm so sorry. Bring them back or have the, have the dad come in and take, begin the repair because it's just too much. And that's exactly, to go back to Laura's question, that's exactly the concern that we have right now. And perfectly good parents are under enormous stress to keep this attunement. Uh, and this soothing and this capacity. And I am highly empathic to, to that um, uh, for people. And they have to be empathic with themselves too. Just remember to, you know, when, when you lose it with a kid, which we all have and all will, uh, to repair that um, and to teach them that it can be repaired so that when they lose it with their kid in the next generation, they know it can be repaired. Or they lose it with their lover, they know it can be repaired. Put, so. put down the phone, pick up the kid. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> thank you, Seaburn Fisher, for coming on. Uh, yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. For coming on today's show. Seaburn, what's the best way for listeners to learn more about you and your book? Well, I have a website, uh, seaburnfisher.com. So that's easy to remember, although I didn't yep. remember it this morning because I, I never go to it. Thankfully, social media people. And I do a lot of training on a website called eeglearn.com. People can check that out. And Ruth is training on that site too. Some other very interesting people training on the implications of neurofeedback. There's a training coming up on the implications of neurofeedback for the immune system. Uh, this is a COVID implication too, or, uh, you know, is that we're going to see autoimmune disorders. The prediction is off the charts. We can, we can address those. We may not cure them, but in many cases, we can really reduce the inflammation and the autoimmune, uh, responses of the nervous system with neurofeedback. So there, well, that, that would be a whole nother, I can tell you. Yeah. <coughs> yeah. What placements? <laughs> oh, I used to be minus two, four. Typically, but but that's that's a different that's a bigger conversation. I know. But when we're when when you click off, I'll I will have something else to talk to talk to you about. Great, 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 great. Thank you again, Seaburn. And Dr. Laura can be found at Jansons.com, J-A-N-S-O-N-S.com. 
Dr. Skip can be found at drskiprin.com. It's drskiphrin.com. If you have an idea for a topic, comments, please email Pete at neuronoodle.com. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Smash that like button on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Cue the music. What a great show.